What is up, guys, and welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet. I am the one that they call Shane, or aka Shane Squatch. And I'm still just Orin. Just plain old Orin over there. <laughs> just being plain and born. Plain Jane Orin. Born Orin. Born Orin. There you go. There's a, there's a good one to go with. <laughs> so uh, I know before we get into this awesome show today, we got a couple news and updates. So I know that you have some awesome news and updates that you'd like to share with the listeners. So, sir, I'll let you go first and uh, enlighten the listeners on to what's going on. Uh, yeah, so if uh, you guys saw on my Instagram the other day, we were less than a couple of months out from Encounter Quest in um, Rockingham, North Carolina. I think it's going to be uh, April 12th, 13th, whatever that Friday and Saturday is. Um, looking forward to this show. This is probably the best event that me and Jenny went to last year. Uh, our buddies at Cryptids of the Corn are speaking. Uh Lyle Blackburn's going to be there. They got a bunch of good guests. They're doing like a, a meet and greet and a plaster casting activity. So uh, we're looking forward to that. If any of you guys are in the uh, North Carolina area, definitely come out and see us. Um, oh, and our buddy uh, Kevin from Where the Weird Ones Are, he's actually Kevin. this year. <laughs> so uh, it, we're going to have just a, a little family reunion, it seems like. Minus so, uh, me. Looking forward to that one. You got, you got, you, what, what, what was that number you were saying last time? Uh, you're 66% of the team or something like that, but now it's 50%. Because yeah. <laughs> Jenny's the, in, what was the word I'm looking for? She's a, uh, She's part of the team, but she's not actively part of the team on the show. She's part of like the the street team. That's a good way of saying it. Because when you guys there go you to go. go places, you guys are recording. You guys go to uh, different paranormal places to check out. She's still involved with the show. She's just not on the show. <laughs> there you go. But, she's our uh, ghost anyway, co-host. Like said, uh, <laughs> April twelfth, thirteenth in uh, Rockingham, North Carolina, Encounter Quest. It's going to be a good time. Uh, you guys come out if you can. And I hear, Shane, you also have a pretty exciting update. So, uh, as far as my news and updates go, um, I am now going to be offering uh, podcast production services through Open Minds Media. And uh, the reasoning for that is that uh, I've kind of fallen into a spot where I need to try to make up some difference financially. So, I'm trying to find different services that I can offer. So, if anybody is interested in starting a podcast or you already have a podcast and you just don't feel like editing it, um, some of the services that I offer include uh, podcast editing. Um, and depending on you know what you want, we can kind of range and figure stuff out from there. Uh, cover art, of course, clips, um, and of course, like social 
social media posts, pretty much anything that you guys might need production-wise for your podcast. Uh, if you guys aren't on any help with it whatsoever, you guys can come to me. Uh, you guys can get a quote depending on exactly what you want. Uh, but anybody who's interested in taking me up on that offer, greatly appreciate it, and it will be helping out me and my family exponentially. And as always, you guys, uh, get up with us on social media, Instagram, the email, bizarreencounters at outlook.com. Uh, hit up the Discord, and we're also on TikTok and YouTube. And you guys remember, submit questions for Bizarre Inquiries, our Patreon-exclusive mini-show. It can be something serious. It can be something kind of jokey and fun, or it can be something not even paranormal-related. But uh, just submit questions, and we'll talk about whatever you guys want us to talk about. And if you guys want to join those discussions, you guys can always hop into the uh, Discord. We do have a specific group where we can kind of just debate the questions if you guys want to throw your ideas in on different stuff. And of course, if you guys want to check out that show, you haven't already, it's going to be dropping once a month on the normal feeds and on YouTube. So make sure you guys keep your guys peeled for that. Uh, but beyond that, if anybody has any encounters that they would like to report, you guys can do so to OMMEncounterReports at Outlook.com. Or you guys can go on the link tree and you guys can fill the submission form that says report an encounter. Uh, we would absolutely love to be able to dive into some of those on the show. Um, maybe if you're somewhat close to me, I can even personally come out and investigate it. But the only way we're ever going to be able to do all this awesome stuff with your guys' collected encounters is if you guys submit them encounters. So no matter how big, no matter how small, don't forget to uh, submit your encounters. And if you guys want to support the show, a couple different ways to do so. Number one, first and foremost... I'm trying to grow up as much as possible for 2024, the Patreon. Uh, I recently updated the tiers probably eh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, there's a lot of new off or new benefits that are offered over there. Uh, there's also the seven-day free trial on the three and the $5 tier if you guys want to check it out. You guys can check it out for seven days for free. But stuff you'll get over there is... Uh, Inquiries of our reality, bizarre encounters, uh, bizarre inquiries, some other random shows that I'm kind of having the works that haven't been fully announced yet. Uh, but you also get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays of episodes, which is the video format. Um, you guys will also get exclusive merch store discounts. Uh, there's some different dry goods depending on what you want to pick. Uh, there's there's uh, hangout slash movie nights. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff going on over there. So if you guys want to get involved with all of us uh, and you guys want to support us all in the same, don't forget to go and check out the Open Minds Media page. Patreon. Of course, also exclusive merch store discounts. Can't forget that one. That one's definitely worth it, depending on which tier you guys pick, of course. And uh, if you guys want to donate to us directly to make it so we can get out to more events, be able to meet more of you guys, get some more, uh, be able, actually be able to network. I mean, going out to different conventions, get more awesome guests to come on the show. Uh, you guys can donate through Red Circle, which is our RSS host. Uh, and if you guys donate, let us know what you guys donated because we would love to give you a shout out on the show and give appreciation where appreciations do, of course. And uh, last, of course, don't forget to go and check out the Open Minds Media merch store if you want to pick up some awesome bizarre encounters, bizarre inquiries, or inquiries of our reality designs. I got a few other ones that I'm working on. Uh, currently, I don't want to release it yet, but I am working on an alien design. I think you guys will definitely enjoy that. It's not specifically related to the podcast, but rather just, you know, a, a cool design for all the cryptid, alien, paranormal, 14 lovers out there. So uh, make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled. Uh, don't forget to follow on social media because as those new merch designs that I'm working on drop you guys will be able to see on the social media of course and as always we got to give a big thank you to our sponsors uh, i know squatch our buddies rick and hans they're always killing it you know we love their stuff we wear it all the time uh any squatch related needs you guys have they can definitely hook you up and then uh, also joe at crypto theology he's also killing it with his cryptid and alien and high strangeness designs 
And of course, our buddy Dave over there, got to give him a big shout out to all of my bearded friends over there. Don't forget to go and check out his products. Absolutely fantastic. They're uh, smoky cedar with like a hint of mint. I really enjoy it, but he also offers beard balm, uh, beard oil, body wash, beard slash body soap. And uh, he also has some other stuff that he collaborates with on his website that you guys can scoop, um, different cryptid paraphernalia and of course dave also puts on a lot of awesome events so if you guys are looking for some events to attend related to the cryptid community you guys can go and check out dave he is the one that throws a lot of these events so he's a really good guy has a lot of awesome events definitely worth following altogether his page his website all of that stuff and to all of my paranormal investigators out there don't forget to go and check out the chattergeist it is the all-in-one paranormal investigating device a lot of new updates coming such as a link an app that's going to be attached in with the device, um, a bunch of other new patches and different stuff that uh, Barry's been working out over there at Dimension Devices. And uh, if anybody has any questions on it whatsoever, you guys can hit up Barry over there on Dimension Devices. He is the guy that programmed and developed it, so he'll be, be able to answer any of your technical questions on the device. And uh, if you guys decide to scoop one for yourself, which I highly recommend, don't forget to use our affiliate link. It goes towards helping out the show a lot, and we uh, greatly appreciate you guys if you do so. And all of this shit we've mentioned is in the link tree in the show description. So, hopping into the show tonight, I assume that most of the listeners know what we're doing, considering the last episode was listed as part one. But uh, without further ado, Oren, let's let's get into it. Let them know what we're talking about tonight. And uh, I don't think I have any sound effects lined up, so we'll we'll keep this one pretty uh, pretty on the cuff on the tonight. <laughs> no more Batman ones, actually. I might still have that from last time. We'll see. Hey, we might can uh, slip it in there somewhere, but uh, hopefully this episode doesn't go quite as long as last week's. Uh, we had to set a lot of groundwork and talk about John Keel and whatnot personally in the last episode. So uh, we're just going to jump right into uh, the Mothman prophecies. Uh, again, we're going through chapter by chapter. We're going to talk about, you know, kind of all of the high strangeness that went on in Point Pleasant and kind of some of Keel's thoughts and theories. And we're going to thought and theory ourselves as we go on. So anyway, um, we went through um, chapters one through part of chapter six in part one. So we're going to jump back into chapter six, which is called Mothman. Mothman! Wait, I got it. I'm Batman. There you go. <laughs> so jumping back into chapter six. Uh, so following the Scarberry Mallet sighting, which is, you know, like the the big popular Mothman sighting. This is the one that everybody knows about. You know, the two couples in the car in the TNT area and Mothman chasing the car. The one we That's talked about sighting. on the tail end of the last episode, if yep, anybody missed it. What we left you guys uh, with a cliffhanger last episode. But dun, dun, dun. <laughs> anyway, so following that sighting. There were more than 100 additional Mothman sightings like in and around Point Pleasant. And in the vast majority of these sightings, the eyewitnesses kind of all describe the same general type of creature. So everybody basically agreed that it was featherless, it was gray in color, was larger than an average man, and had a wingspan of somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 feet. And uh, it took off straight up into the air, and it did not flap its wings when it flew. So it's using some type of zero gravity technology. It's just floating. Like maybe so. I mean, just just a weird thing to throw out before we get we're really early in the show for me to go on a side tangent. But if you get into the whole like ether concept, you know, and other beings from other realities being aware of the fact that we are in some type of substance, it would almost make sense they'd be able to projectile themselves in a different matter when they're almost seeing like what we're existing in is almost like 
like how we would see fish in water. You know what I mean? Or, I mean, they could just be from another dimension or whatnot that gravity works differently or affects them differently. Who knows? Like because they're way heavier in their reality. So this one, they're just like paper lights. They're just, <laughs> um, I don't think it's in the notes for uh, this section, but uh, something that I have come across in this Mothman research is a lot of people said that as big as this thing appeared to be, the wings would have had to be way bigger, like under, you know, earthly terrestrial means for it to fly. And so, I, I mean, maybe you're onto something. It, it is some sort of, you know, interdimensional ether or something going on here. Or its wings function somewhat like how a beetle's would work. Because that's one weird thing that a lot of people dive into is the fact that beetle's wings shouldn't be able to lift their size. So maybe it has something to do with just a different flight dynamic that we don't fully comprehend or understand yet. Well, Beetle Man just doesn't really roll off the tongue. Beetle Man! I wonder if there is a Beetle Man. We'll have to look into that. <laughs> there's a lot of weird sightings that I'm unaware of. I wonder if there's like a one-off of some kind of Beetle Man. Oh, I'm sure there's one somewhere. It's in Egypt. It's a giant scarab man. So uh, jumping back in, um, apart from like the glowing red eyes, it seems like a lot of the eyewitnesses really couldn't remember much about the details of the face of the creature. But... A lot of people did note that they had this like crippling sense of fear whenever they were in the presence of the creature. And uh, one eyewitness described it as, quote, a weird kind of fear that gripped you and held you. And also Mothman, you know, of course, we talked about a little bit in the Scarberry Mallet sighting, but he was frequently reported to chase cars. And so, you know, this evoking the sense of fear and chasing cars, those are two traits that are heavily associated with Dogman and also, you know, the glowing red eyes. So I don't know if there's something there, but, uh, you know, just kind of something interesting to note. I mean, two comments I want to make real quick. One, of course, anything that has glowing red eyes, you're subconsciously going to associate that with something bad. So even if it was something completely polite, if it had glowing red eyes, you're instantly going to get like this weird, ominous, like, evil feeling from it because you subconsciously associate red and black with like something dark or evil and as far as like the whole car thing goes think about how like animals work in nature as far as you know they try to do this thing where even if they know they're going to lose they'll charge at something hoping that it'll back down before it turns around and chases them down so with a lot of these cryptid sightings i wonder if that's what it comes down to with cars is that they see this big thing coming at them and they basically just try to play chicken or balls up with it thinking that if they back down that they're going to get chased so it may not be that they're necessarily trying to do anything like insidious or like you know hurt the people in the car but rather they see it as like if they don't if they back down like they have to chase it otherwise it might chase them like they can't they can't back down from it so i wonder i wonder if that's kind of what it is if you're trying to like associate it with more of like the animal like mentality yeah no i i definitely agree with you i think you know in a lot of these dogman scenarios there seems to be something kind of more malevolent and insidious going on there but i I'm getting a little bit into our thoughts and theories that are going to kind of wrap all this up. But with the Mothman, I think it's very possible that this is basically just like an animal from somewhere else that ended up here, you know, and that kind of goes along with right uh, what you were saying. I mean, it, a shark is not being evil or malevolent when it bites somebody in the ocean. And, you know, if the Mothman is chasing your car, he could just be being an animal. You're just reacting and running off instinct, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything doesn't have to be, you know, we talk about it on the show sometimes, 
everything doesn't have to be a demon. You know, maybe everything doesn't have to be uh, some scary monster. It could just be a, a, a wild animal from somewhere else that ended up here. So. <laughs> Weird thing to think about. If this thing is winged usually like most winged things there's not very many like huge winged things on this planet so if it theoretically is coming from another reality it almost makes you wonder if this thing would almost be small in that reality so when it's in our reality it just chases everything because it actually feels adequate for its size in this reality i mean maybe it's actually like a moth or bat sized where it came from and the actual things that exist there are in comparison like us compared to a moth just just a weird thing to think about <laughs> anything is possible so <laughs> all right so uh, kind of rounding out chapter six uh we're going to talk a little bit more about woodrow derenberger and so after his initial meeting and encounter with mr cold uh you know derenberger went public with his story and he was kind of thrust into the public eye at that point and so a bunch of locals, you know, kind of congregated on his property, you know, hoping to catch a glimpse of a UFO or Mothman or Mr. Cold himself. But um, Mr. Cold did keep his promise to Derenberger, and he returned and visited him shortly after their initial visit. And Derenberger claimed that he had been suffering from some sort of stomach ailment. And during this second visit, Mr. Cold gave him a vial of medicine, which he said cured him instantly. And this kind of reminded me of, uh, we talked about it a little bit in our uh, DMT episode, but kind of like Edgar Casey and, uh, you know, these type of entities being able to heal people and having, you know, the solutions for ailments. I mean, so, if, uh, Ingrid, if, if Cold is some type of alien too. I mean, who knows what they could... Like, it seems like it's just so simple for them. They can just cure any human disease with just, boom, here you go, no problem. Like, that just shows how possibly more advanced than us all of these different entities and other races of beings could be. Like, as far as I've seen with all of this research, it seems like humans, as far as intelligent races go, seem to be tailing behind everything else significantly. <laughs> well, that would make sense. I mean, whether they're extraterrestrials or ultra terrestrials or time travelers or whatever, I mean, obviously these entities and beings would have technology that far exceeds anything we have even today, much less in 1966. Very true. <laughs> All right. So also in this second meeting with Mr. Cold, uh, he told Derenberger what his first name was, which of course is Indrid, I-N-D-R-I-D. So his name is Indrid Cold. So um, around this same time, Keel spoke with Gray Barker, who we mentioned in part one and also in our Flatwoods Monster episode. So go back and check those out for a little bit more information about Gray Barker. Uh, but he told Keel kind of about all the strange activity and the reports that were coming out of Point Pleasant. So in December of 1966, uh, Keel headed down to Point Pleasant for the first time to kind of investigate things himself. So uh, that is all for Chapter 6. Do you have anything before we jump into Chapter 7? Just out of curiosity, because I didn't actually fully catch it, did Darren Berger ever actually see the Mothman, at least up to this point? I don't think he ever saw the Mothman, period. So it's kind of weird that people are like congregating on his lawn hoping to see like Mothman when obviously there's multiple events that are all kind of accompanied with each other, but they're all like separate isolated incidents that are all just happening around the same time. So it's well, like, are they separate and isolated or is there some sort of connection? Like, I tend I'm, to think, and I'm going to, I'm going to save my big theory for the last episode, but 
Yeah, it is interesting how, and we talked about this a little bit in part one, Yeah, everybody kind of fixates on the Mothman cryptid aspect of this, but if you read the book, there's way more about especially Men in Black and also like UFO activity than there is about the Mothman. I mean, the Mothman is a relatively small percentage of the Mothman prophecies. I mean, like, when I say isolated, I'm thinking more so like there's a bunch of weird events that are all happening in the same place at the same time that obviously has some underlying tone to them, but individually, they're all very different types of encounters that one person isn't experiencing a Men in Black, Mothman, and cold like all at the same time you know what i mean well, like they're kind of different separately placed but all happening at the same time there is a little bit of overlap uh, i don't know if you remember in part one we were talking about connie carpenter who is mary hire's niece i believe and she initially had a mothman sighting and then a strange men in black type entity came and visited her so, well, I guess uh, one you know, comes after the other. It's just cold. That's the kind of separate, but possibly kind of the outlier. But yeah. uh, as we'll see much more next week's episode, there is a lot of this weird, injured, cold, um, prophesying type situations going on around Keel himself. So, uh, there's a lot to unpack when we get to that. But, uh, like I said, just keep that one in the chamber for uh, next week's episode. Got it ready, locked and loaded. All right, so we are going to jump into Chapter 7, and this is a good one. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, Chapter 7 is called The Night of the Bleeding Ear. So, like I said, uh, Keel goes down to Point Pleasant in December of 1966, and shortly after he arrived, he gathered with several locals. Uh, The Scarberries and the Mallets were there. Connie Carpenter and her fiancé, Keith, were there, and uh, Mary Heyer was also at this meeting. And they met at the home of another local woman named Mabel McDaniel. So after they kind of met and got to know each other and mingled a little bit, around 9 p.m. that night, they headed out to the TNT area to investigate. And Keel and Connie Carpenter and Keith uh, searched the old generator plant building where the Scarberries and Mallets had seen Mothman. And they didn't really see anything noteworthy. But uh, as they were heading toward the exit to leave the building, Connie Carpenter suddenly screamed, quote, those eyes, he's here. And then she began, like, just crying hysterically. And so Keel and her fiancé Keith rushed her outside. And once she got outside, she said, quote, I saw those eyes, two big red eyes, by the wall in the back. So Keel, you know, rushed back into the building, but uh, he, again, didn't see anything. And when he rejoined the others outside, uh, Mabel McDaniel asked him what was that loud noise that they had heard while he was in the building. And apparently everyone that was outside had heard this loud noise, but Keel didn't hear anything when he was in the uh, the actual building. And uh, McDaniel described it as, quote, metallic and hollow, a loud noise, like a piece of metal had fallen all the way down from the top or something. So at around the same time, uh, Mary Mallet suddenly noticed that there was a small stream of blood tri- trickling out of her ear. And Keel kind of theorized that, and this is another quote, Miss Mallet's bleeding ear was a sign of concussion, meaning the air pressure had suddenly changed. And I think this is kind of interesting because a lot of people theorize maybe with like portals opening, 
there could be like an air pressure type situation going on. So I thought that was kind of an interesting detail that he threw in there. It's almost, I, I would imagine it almost being like opening up like a vacuum because assumably, even if you're going to two different universes and there's not crazy weather patterns happening on either side, there is going to be a different amount of pressure in one universe than the other or a different gravitational pull in one universe than the other. So there's still going to be some like balancing out that needs to be in the in-between that it seems like one's probably going to rebalance with the other. Like the the atmosphere from one's going to pull into one side or the atmosphere from this one's going to pull into the other side. But there's going to be some type of like crossover between that depending on which one has the higher gravitational pull is going to pull something from the other one. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, even as humans, if we drive a little ways up a mountain, you know, pressure changes and we have to pop our ears and stuff Holy like that. Holy so crap. Going- I am so bad with that, that every single time I drive, even going around Michigan, dude, I'll go to like a city that's like a couple miles away from my city and then starts to like elevate. My ears always pop so bad. It's not even funny. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if that happens to us just in that little bit of elevation change, if we're talking about portals and God knows what, I mean, that theory kind of makes sense to me. I mean, imagine how intense it would have to be with ear popping in order for it to cause somewhat of a concussion. Cause it's like people think being on a plane is bad enough. That's probably like the worst pressure thing that we deal with for the most part is like humans. Just like imagine that assumably times at least like 10 to the point where it would actually cause some form of a concussion. You know, like that's, that's pretty crazy to think about. (laughs) And a plane is a self-contained thing like this was not self-contained you know in theory this was something that was happening out in the open i'm surprised that nobody else that, that nobody else had like an effect from it even if it was just simply like an ear popping because they were farther away from where this location may have been but like i'm surprised nobody else was affected by it besides her if it's to the point where her ears started bleeding yeah she seemed to be the only one that was affected by it but uh like i said everybody did hear this strange metallic noise and Keel theorized that the metallic noise could have also been associated with this pressure change since he was, you know, in the building and didn't hear anything, but everybody who was outside of the building did. I mean, it's in a building, so of course metallic noises, but you were just talking about the whole connection with a lot of these similarities with Dogman and metallic sounds when Dogmen are seen mm-hmm. is another sure. one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Which I've always theorized that it has something to do with like some kind of door opening for like an underground base or some type of underground unit. A lot of people like to throw the whole portal idea with them with the metallic noise. And I didn't normally, I don't normally kind of sway that way with it. Cause it just doesn't seem like the type of noise like a portal would make. But when you add this in with the Dogman stuff, you know, I, I, I kind of give it, give it a little bit more credit than I normally would have in this situation in any other situation. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, like we talked about a few minutes ago, there's a lot of strange little details and connections to Dogman lore in this whole story. So I, I didn't even think about the whole metallic sound till you just said it, but no, that's another good one. I mean, even the whole idea about people talking about a lot of Dogman having red eyes. I mean, there's there's differentiations depending on like sightings, locations of where there are, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if something it kind of gets into that whole idea possibly that something is like choosing a form and imagine it almost like that concept of like, uh, I hate to describe it as like the fairly odd parents, but like they keep their same like coloration and kind of basic archetypal look, but they change like their main physical appearance. Like I'm almost imagining like Mothman and Dogman as they're both the same kind of colorations. They're just a different physical change. Like it could be, 
somewhat of the same type of creature because it may not have a form in its own reality, but it comes into ours and then it kind of meshes into a form. You know what I mean? Like just kind of something weird to think about. Yeah. Kind of a variation on the whole wearing masks phenomenon that we talk about. Continuously. Yeah. It's, it's almost every episode it comes up, dude. I swear. Yeah. At this point, pretty much. <laughs> we need to make like wearing masks, t-shirts, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to wear, <laughs> I'm going to make a shirt. That's like an orb. Then it has like three layers of masks on. There's going to be like an alien, a ghost, and then like a dog man. It'll just be like half on top of each other. I'll come up with something cool. I got, I got some Have ideas. You, uh, so, okay. We're, I know we're like, 30 minutes in almost, and we're still only on the second chapter, but have you ever seen <laughs> the cover to the book Passport to Magonia? I don't think I have. Okay, so this is Jacques Vallée. This book, I think, was uh, published in the 60s or 70s, and this is kind of the, the first work that popularized the idea of like these connections between fairy lore and the whole UFO phenomenon. And if you want to hold on for a second, I will grab this book so you can see the cover of it if you would like to see it. Absolutely. All right. Hang on a second. All right, sir. So the cover of this book is literally an alien wearing different masks. I've seen that cover before. I don't know where. Maybe you've shown me that before. Uh, it's quite possible. But anyway, when you were talking about that, I was like, that is a thing that exists. So anyway. <laughs> I'll come up with something cool that's not copying that, but... <laughs> Something that's kind of in that general atmosphere. Homage to it. How about that? That'll work. Yes, uh, I'll do it that way. I call it a parody. All right. So I'm going to try to get back into this. So uh, rounding out this chapter, uh, chapter seven. So between Mary Mallet's bleeding ear and Connie Carpenter just kind of going hysterical, the whole group decided that it was just time to you know pack up and go. So they all got back in their cars and returned to Mabel McDaniel's house. But later that night, Keel returned to the TNT area alone. And again, he found no signs of Mothman or anything like that. But he did say, quote, As I passed a certain point on one of the isolated roads, I was suddenly engulfed in fear. I stepped on the gas, and after I went a few yards, my fear vanished as quickly as it came. I continued to drive, eventually returning again to the same spot. And again, a wave of unspeakable fear swept over me. So again, this is like dogman type stuff. And you know, is it possible that these portals or these changes in pressure or whatever's going on cause this fear? I'm glad you know. said that because I was about to throw that same idea that changes in pressure may almost cause the same effect as um, like that the predator being in the area type of yeah, feeling. Yeah, some kind of hysteria. Atmospheric pressure changes, yes. Mm -hmm. So finally, uh, Keel worked up the courage to get out of his car and investigate this area of fear, as he called it. Area of fear. I like that. That sounds yeah. cool. <laughs> and he said, quote, the air was perfectly still. There wasn't an audible sound, not even a bird call. And this, to me, sounds a lot like the Oz factor, which people talk about a lot in Bigfoot sightings, where, like, you know, right before a Bigfoot sighting, they say the forest goes dead silent. There's no birds, no bugs, anything like that. It's that and apex predator feeling. Yep, that something is more dangerous than you is in the area. So everything gets quiet. Bugs, everything. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting that he basically uh, connected this phenomenon to you know this sense of fear and 
possible cryptids being around. So, I mean, a lot of connections there. I just want to point out the fact that I find it really weird that even the bugs get quiet because, like, if a giant apex predator is coming into the area and it's, like, a Sasquatch or a fucking bear, like, they're not... They're not like, oh no, I hear a cricket. Let me chase it down. Like they got, they got other bigger stuff that they're more concerned with. So I find it weird that bugs aren't technically threatened, but yet they act as if they're threatened, which shows that maybe it is something that's like almost like an aura. You know what I mean? Like something, something they give off. Yeah, like because animals, like deers and rabbits, that's one thing. But it seems like there's something more than just apex predator going on here with it. You know, something is affecting the physical environment. It seems to me and more than just a, oh, there, there's a big predator around. Because, I mean, even birds is another prime example. They might even be like 100 feet up a tree. They're not concerned with a Sasquatch or or a bear, you know, like, why are they being quiet? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, this this Oz effect shows up time and time again, especially in Bigfoot sightings. So something really interesting. I thought the whole infrasound concept. Yeah, for sure. I had to drop that wording in there. Cause I know we were like kind of dancing around actually saying it. <laughs> so, uh, Keel kind of speculated that this, uh, zone of fear was quote, probably walking through a beam of ultrasonic waves. So that kind of goes along with what you were saying. And he returned the next day to this area, like in broad daylight. And he said that this kind of zone of fear had disappeared and he didn't have any of those feelings or effects from it. So, assumably, it was from something, something yeah. in the area. Something had changed the atmosphere or, yeah. Be it a yeah, portal or an actual physical being of some sort. Yeah. So, because of all this that he experienced, you know, just in his first day there... Keel became convinced that there was, quote, UFO-type phenomenon that were present in the TNT area. And so he began tracking down eyewitnesses at this point. And Mary Heyer also began publishing UFO reports in the newspaper The Messenger. And so this led to, like, dozens and dozens of more people coming forward with their own reports, like, once they started seeing, hey, I'm not the only person this happened to. So, kind of like we talk about with podcasts. Yep. You know, people aren't going to think you're crazy if other people are experiencing the same thing. It's kind of like a back and forth, though, because it's like, are more people comfortable with talking about their experiences because people are talking about it, or on the other side of it, and I'm sure it's a mixture of both, are other people jealous that other people are having experiences so they create their own so that they can also be part of the the group, so to speak? I think we've talked about this on the show. It's probably been a while at this point, but I think you know there probably is some people that are fraudulent and doing this just for attention, but I tend to think the vast majority of people who come forward with these stories at least believe what they're saying. You know, whether it was actually a UFO or Bigfoot that they saw, or if it was something more mundane is almost irrelevant. I I feel like these people believed what they were saying, especially in 1966. See, that's why I like the video stuff more where you can actually see people's faces and expressions. Cause in text, you have no idea if they were like scratching the side of their temple a lot as they were telling the story. Like anytime I, I really seriously want to dig into something. I always try to find like the physical video of the person telling their encounters so that you can read their body language. Cause that's, that's a huge thing when it comes to taking in encounters. And I've heard that from a lot of different researches is that it's like with the tech stuff, you never know. 
You can always tell with people's body language, though, when they're telling the story. And even if it isn't fully factual, if they believe it, like you can still see that in their body language, too. And not only that, uh, we talked about this a little bit in the DMT episode, but you can tell, and I, I'm not trying to say anything bad about anybody here, but you can tell when someone probably wasn't capable of making up this story or spinning this yarn, you know what I'm saying? Especially the ones, the ones that I always absolutely love, dude, are the ones where people don't actually have a name for something. They're just kind of like describing it. Like the people that like yeah. have never looked into Sasquatch once. They're like, I saw this giant gorilla looking thing in the woods. Like I'm like, ding. All right, let's yep, check that story sure out. Did. <laughs> so, uh, jumping back in. So in addition to all the Mothman and UFO sightings in the Point Pleasant area, there's a lot of like strange phone calls that people in the area started receiving. And these calls were like repeated. They'd be all hours of the night. And they mostly consisted of nothing on the other end of the line, but either metallic beeping or sounds that resembled heavy breathing. And Keel received several of these calls himself. And he said, quote, played at a slower speed, the recorded breathing was an evenly spaced series of pulses resembling the swishing sound of a phonograph when the needle reaches the end of the record and does not eject. Heavy breathing would not be so uniform. So, you know, like a record player, when it gets to the end of the record and just, you know, kind of spins after the music is done, that's what he's saying it sounded like, just that like whooshing sound, and it was very uniform and obviously not something organic. So as we will see, these type of strange phone calls keep popping up time and time again associated with this men in black type activity. So at the end of chapter seven, we also get a little bit more information on uh, Woody Derenberger. And Keel says that following these encounters with injured cold, uh, Derenberger was subjected to like a full battery of psychiatric tests, but all the tests came back and they found that there was like nothing quote unquote wrong with him. And there was no evidence of abnormalities, excuse me. But this is kind of interesting. So Derenberger was contacted by a NASA employee named Bruce Parsons. That's interesting. <laughs> I was waiting for the button on that one. Like every, if your name is Parsons, guaranteed you like to blow shit up or you're working with rockets. <laughs> working with rockets here. So that's anyway, a power name, like 150%. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, power name for sure. But anyway, so this Mr. Parsons invited the Derenberger family to tour the rocket facility at Cape Kennedy, Florida. I find and it funny that a lot of this Mothman stuff is like associated with Batman, Batman's name, Bruce and Bruce Parsons. Oh, so out of any that. Parsons that it could be, it's funny that it happened to be Bruce in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, while they're on this visit touring the facility, uh, Derenberger said that every night he was separated from his family and he was like questioned and uh, interrogated for hours regarding his encounters with injured cold. And he said that at one point, his interrogators showed him a star map, and they said, quote, that's where they're from. And in the book, it doesn't say where the star map was, what it showed, and Derenberger might not have even known. But anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. And when Derenberger came back, he brought back like several photographs and souvenirs. So this is a real thing that happened. He at least went to Cape Kennedy. 
like whatever happened there, we can speculate, but him and his family did go there. They brought back photos. They brought back souvenirs and memorabilia, including a piece of material that came from an astronaut spacesuit. And Derenberger said that this material looked very similar to what Indrid Cold was wearing under his overcoat on the night of their first meeting. So I thought that was pretty wild. It's actually NASA employees or it's other earthly be- other un- non-earthly beings working for NASA. Just a hey, weird thing to think it. about. Why? I, I'm assuming that the reason why the launches happen in Florida is because it's surrounded by water on all sides. But I wonder if there's there's got to be more of a reason. I'm sure somebody knows it. Somebody, some listener out there is like, I know the exact reason why. But like, why Florida? Other than the fact that, again, it's surrounded by water. So I guess if you go up, like there's more of a chance that if you're going to come back down, you're going to end up luckily in some water. <laughs> yeah, so everybody pop into the Discord and give us your thoughts and theories. I got to know an answer. There's got to be an official answer for that. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into uh, chapter eight, and this is another one we're going to kind of breeze through. But chapter eight is called Procession of the Damned. And in this chapter, Keel discusses several encounters with these men in black type entities. And he says that in many of these encounters, these, you know, kind of men in black type strange tanned men arrive in old black cars and they question and harass. UFO and Mothman witnesses in the Point Pleasant area. And in some of these cases, they claim to be census takers. (laughs) (laughs) Those people harass you anyways. (laughs) Yeah, for real. And so they knock on doors of local homes, and they seemed especially interested in the number of children who lived in the home. And remember that uh, it's going to pop up like something about children in a little bit. So just uh, keep that one in the back of your mind. That's kind of creepy. Census takers want to know how many kids you have, and that yeah. just sounds like some weird elite, you know, Epstein Island type shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many kids are here? We got to have an exact number of kids. Adults don't fucking matter. Let us know how many kids there are. Just, are they boy? Are they girl? <laughs> what are they wearing? <laughs> what are they wearing? Are they wearing a nice outfit today? Or like? <laughs> so Keel also says that sometimes these people claiming to be census takers only ask for a glass of water. And Keel says that this is, quote, an old fairy trick taken up from the Middle Ages and dusted off. So I thought that was kind of interesting. A fairy trick, like Mm -hmm. as in like trying to get you to give them an item, I'm assuming, because it's like the whole thing with like fairies is that you you gift them and stuff. Is that the concept? I assumed so. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of, you know, these connections between possible like the men in black and then there's connection with vampire lore and fairy lore and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, he's basically just kind of saying whatever these men in black entities are, this kind of activity is ancient. This is not something new that popped up in the fifties and sixties with the UFO wave. You know, I just imagine them being like, can I get some water? And then they get the water and they just dump it on the top of their head. (laughs) This is how you drink, right? We're going to get into some kind of that strange behavior and them not knowing how to operate and do things. Look inconspicuous. This is how humans drink. Dump. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Mary Heyer, she said that she even had, you know, several encounters with these type of entities. And we talked about a couple of them in episode one. But her first encounter was with a man that she said was approximately four and a half feet tall. And this happened in like January of 1967. 
But she said that he was wearing nothing more than like a short sleeve blue shirt and thin blue trousers. So, you know, this is the middle of winter and he's wearing not winter clothes. But she did notice that he was wearing uh, thick lens glasses. And this is another one to keep in mind. Shoes with very thick rubber soles. That's going to pop up time and time again. I'm kind of curious about his body shape, meaning that was he completely like normally proportioned or was he because four and a half feet or was he like a little person squatty like kind of broad uh, not necessarily fat i don't think it said but like just very broad you know this wasn't like a, a little person you know that's what i was saying i wonder if he was like a using a little person not in the cryptid way but like in the politically correct way of a little person like i'm curious if he had like that body shape or if he was just like normal body shaped but that short because if somebody's normal non-little people body shaped and that short like it's gonna raise some questions because not very many people are shaped like that you know yeah and i don't think he was even shaped like a quote-unquote normal human it was like much broader than someone of that height should have been is my recollection certified chode yeah, he's a thick <laughs> boy. But anyway, so Mary said that this man, entity, whatever you want to call him, spoke in a, quote, hard-to-understand sing-song manner, like a recording. So there we go. Here's recordings again in this weird sing-song manner, these things talking. Again, this is going to come up time and time and time and time and time and time again as we go through this. Sing-song manner reminds me very, it's very Faye-esque. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So uh, this guy told Mary this like long disjointed story about his truck breaking down, and then he asked for directions to a nearby town. And while all this was going on, he picked up an ink pen that Mary had on her desk, and he looked at it as if he had never seen a pen before, had no idea what it was or what its function was. And so Mary told him that he could have this pen, and this man became like, super duper excited and overjoyed and like ran out of the office into the night again in his <laughs> thin little blue shirt in January in West Virginia. I just imagine this guy coming up and being like, Oh yeah, my truck, my truck's been messed up, man. It's a, it's really, really bad. The, uh, the interdimensional converter went out and she's like, what the what? And he's like, I mean the, uh, the spark plugs that the spark plugs are bad. <laughs> <laughs> the window won't roll up like whatever is normally wrong with your human cars. <laughs> the flux capacitor. <laughs> the flux capacitor ain't, ain't fluxing. <laughs> we need more coffee ground. <laughs> I need all of your aluminum foil. Don't ask me why, but I need it. <laughs> all right. So we are going to jump into chapter nine, which is called wake up down there again with an exclamation mark. I love all so, the titled names for each chapter. They're they're fantastic. I just imagine them in that like 50s sci-fi thrown out wording style where it's like the black and white old oh, movie the posters. The names get like increasingly unhinged as we go through the book. Like they start off like, "Oh, okay." The once we get man like 16, 17, 18, they're unhinged. So just buckle up. For as serious as his research is, clearly Keel has a sense of humor. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. So Anyway, in Chapter 9, Keel kind of continues to explore these strange phone calls and some of the other activity that was associated with the Men in Black and everything going on in Point Pleasant. 
And he says that a lot of these calls had like Morse code type beeping. And again, the heavy breathing that we talked about. But interesting. Yeah, which sounded like Darth Vader when slowed down. <laughs> but he says that some of these calls consisted of a voice reciting a series of quote seemingly meaningless numbers why has this happened so much every single time i hear about this it's always number sequences Mm -hmm. and he said that many people that reside in ufo flap areas also report hearing like loud disembodied voices at night um, and this is another quote, usually waking them up with a sharp command, such as wake up down there, which is, of course, the name of this chapter. And he says that, quote, these things are manifestations within the electromagnetic spectrum, but the voices, however, seem to come from a more mysterious super spectrum. And he uses this word super spectrum a lot. And kind of my understanding is this is just kind of the word he uses for other dimensions, things that are above or below our human perception is at least how it struck me. So uh, Woody Derenberger, he had several run-ins with these men in black. And in fact, two of them allegedly came and visited him at the appliance store where he worked. And he described them as, quote, short, stocky, dressed in black suits and having olive complexions. And he said that the two men told him to, quote, forget all about what you've seen. So this is just kind of classic MIB stuff here. (laughs) That's what I was about to say. That's the most generic line they could have possibly thrown at him. Forget all you've seen. You've seen nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to fast forward to March of 1967. And injured cold pops back up. And he allegedly landed his spaceship on Woody Derenberger's property and took him on a flight to Brazil, which I think is kind of oddly specific. (laughs) So, Derenberger claimed that a few months after that, he was taken to Lanulos, which is supposedly Indrid Cold's home planet. And he allegedly visited Lanulos several more times after this first encounter, and he described the planet like really... In mundane terms, he said it was very similar to Earth. But uh, Derenberger's wife and children also supposedly met Indrid Cold throughout all of this. And, you know, we talk about it from time to time. There's a lot about this in the show Hellier. So, yeah, take it or leave it. I know people's mileage varies on that show, but if you want to learn more about Indrid Cold and his family and his supposed interactions with Indrid, um, definitely check out Hellier. According to Hellier, too, didn't Indrid actually have two sons or something, too? Yeah, and the Mothman Prophecies mentions that. Uh, I didn't put it specifically in the notes. Like I said, I tried to streamline this stuff as much as possible. But, uh, yeah, even the book talks about him having two sons. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if you've read into it this far in the book, but are they are they said to be extraterrestrials like him, or are they said to be hybrids? I think they look very similar to him. And, you know, he largely looked human-like except for some kind of exaggerated features and i think the the children were very similar is my understanding so if they were too similar could they have almost been like clones from the same dna or are they actually like his physical sons see i i don't know if they looked that similar i haven't heard anything one way or the other about that but there's no reference to the mom so again was it was the mom 
An earthling? There, there is actually. I think um, the mother was supposedly living in Lanulos. Okay, um, so that was fully an extraterrestrial bloodline then, rather than it being mixed with something here. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, jumping back in, I thought this was kind of interesting. So like I said, uh, Woody Derenberger's wife supposedly met Indrid Cold, and she said... In her opinion, he was, quote, engaged in something evil. It's that smile, so, bro. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting because, like, Woody, uh, you know, describes him very, you know, neutral, like, didn't get bad vibes from him, didn't get good vibes from him. He's just kind of there, just like a person. And his wife, you know, right off the rip, thinks that this guy's not only, like, up to no good, but straight up evil. And I think that kind of gets back to these like Collins elite ideas that I talk about all the time on the show. And I'm not going to beat that dead horse, but I, I think it's the smile too, because it's like two people can perceive a smile differently. And depending yeah. on how exaggerated the smile is, one person's like, Oh, it's just a smile. And the other one's like, uncanny valley. That thing's to, creepy. <laughs> yeah. I think we're supposed to believe that this was a very, very exaggerated smile because that's the first thing everybody says about this guy is, you know, the grinning man. Say, imagine the man who laughs. That night, that movie I was talking about in the last one. Like that's that's yeah. how I always see him drawn, and it's kind of like, was that inspired? Well, actually, that was before these encounters. Mm-hmm. So, did, what inspired what? Like, is there some type of connection? Is there some type of like similarity? Was it some type of projected thought on somebody's head? I don't know. But like, just how close they are drawn. Just like, I don't know. There's got to be some tie to it, even if it was like the artist used that as like an idea of like, this is why I imagine it looks like, cause this is already in my mind because Very this movie has been out for 40 years at this yeah. point. Yeah. No, that seems entirely plausible to me. Like even the hairstyle, I'll slick back, like look mm-hmm. up a, like a picture of that movie cover and look up uh cold. And it's like pretty, pretty comparable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Keel noted that Darenberger's story contained quote, definite fairy overtones. And this kind of bothered him because he said a lot of the stuff that Darren Berger reported did not fit what he called like the usual mold of UFO contactee stories. And Darren Berger later wrote a book about all his experiences, and it was titled Visitors from Lanulos. And again, they talk about this a lot in Hellier. So uh, during the same time as the Mothman sightings, there were several reports of dogs and cows and other livestock being found dead in the area. And here we go. Apparently they were from quote, surgical like incisions in their throats. And as is par for the course with all these type situations, there were no blood or footprints found anywhere in the area of these slayings. So Keel speculates that in the same way that UFOs and cryptids seem to be like kind of fascinated with human sexuality and reproduction and menstruation and things like that, that flesh and blood might somehow be essential to the phenomenon in some way. And he further goes on to say that, quote, energies from the super spectrum might need these biological materials to, and I think this is wild, quote, construct temporary identities. Ooh, like they're non-physical, but they need some type of physical essence in order to manifest their own their own physical appearance in this reality. Yeah, it's almost like they need some sort of shell to inhabit. I also was kind of getting 
like again, not to beat the whole Collins Elite thing into the ground, but like ritualistic vibes too. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna touch on that actually right now. I didn't realize it was this close. I so. let you in, man. That's I did that on purpose, not even knowing it. Well, I guess they wouldn't be so. on purpose then, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> it was a synchronicity. Yes. It was intended to happen. <laughs> so soon after the uh, Scarberry mallet sighting, the charred body of a dog was discovered in the TNT area. And Keel kind of notes how the UFO wave of the 60s coincided with kind of the widespread acceptance or popularity, if you will, of occult and witchcraft practices. And he speculated, quote, if it might not have been sacrificed in some secret magic ritual by some unknown local warlock, a ritual that brought Mothman into being. And I think this is wild because if you guys listen to our Snarly Yow episode, kind of the, uh, the presentation we did for our buddy Dave at Cryptid Halloween, we talked about this idea of the wizard of... Uh, South Mountain in Maryland and how his practices could have manifested the Snarly Yow. And that's basically what Keel's saying here. I mean, I was even going to throw in the possibility that considering it was charred, uh, it seems like obviously you have somewhat of the UFO motif with this, especially with the cattle Mm -hmm. mutilations. And it seems that from a lot of encounters that I've read about when people actually have physical contact with UFOs, they give off some type of vibration that's so intense that it actually will burn the person that's touching it. So, I mean, like definitely a possibility that this thing may have been, could have been theoretically burned by a UFO for, for some reason, you know what I mean? Like, even if it saw something coming out, it went to go chase them. They closed up the doorway. It ran to the door, just got charred and incinerated, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we're going to get into similar ideas to that. I think it's in this section, but if not, it's in part three, but that's going to kind of come up again. So, All right, we will jump into chapter 10, and I promise I'm trying to go as quick as I can through these. I know we're already at almost an hour, but chapter 10 is called Purple Lights and April Foolishness. So in this chapter, Another good name. Yeah, yeah. I I told you that they're just getting progressively more unhinged. But uh, Keel discusses some of the high strangeness that he himself experienced and also others in the Point Pleasant area. And he describes sightings of strange lights that he and Mary Heyer had. Uh, and they saw these a few miles from Point Pleasant in a small community called uh, Gallipolis, I believe. So it's uh, Gallipolis Ferry, West Virginia. And there is a Gallipolis, uh, Ohio, which is right across the river. Uh, that's where the Silver Bridge kind of connected Point Pleasant to. But this is a different community in West Virginia. So just to avoid confusion. But people in the area routinely saw orbs and experienced a lot of like electronic malfunctions. And so once Keel heard about this, he had to go investigate. And one night he was sitting on a hillside near the Chief Cornstalk Hunting Grounds Animal Preserve. I know you probably got got something for that one. (laughs) And he said that he uh, saw a large rectangular craft. And the craft seemed to have windows and in one of the windows, he saw a humanoid figure like standing in the window. And while he was like up on this hill watching this craft, he took his flashlight and he shined it up at the craft, and it just like 
rocketed off into the air. It suddenly flew away. It's like, shit, they spotted us. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Spotlight. We don't know what's on the other side of that. <laughs> so the following night, Keel returned to the same spot on the same hillside, and he saw more strange lights and UFO-type activity. And again, um, he used his flashlight to communicate with one of these objects. And uh, Mary Heyer was with him this night. And when he was communicating with this object, he used like Morse code with his flashlight. And he spelled out the word descend in Morse code with his flashlight. And the object descended. And Mary Heyer was just like freaking out at this point. And uh, sounds like close encounters with the whole boo, 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 the light thing back and forth communicating. (laughs) Yeah. And Keel said that this object, when it descended, it followed like the the falling leaf motion, which I'm sure you've heard about in UFO reports where, you know, something doesn't descend directly. It kind of meanders and floats down, which kind of shows that this it almost could be theoretically like weightless. You know what I mean? That it's it weighs so so little that it can't go straight down because it ends up getting caught in wind gusts, which if you start relating this to like the material from like Roswell, for example, mm-hmm. you know, it was like paper light or like paper thin, super duper light. You could crinkle it into a ball. And then as soon as you let go, it would go back to its original shape. So it's like yeah. it still kind of follows that whole concept that this seems to be a principle that goes across all UFO stuff that this material is like weightless, like literally weightless. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I really didn't even think about that. But something that did come to mind to me during this, you know, the the fact that these crafts were communicating through signals and seemed to be under intelligent control and were doing what they were, quote unquote, told to do. This to me sounds a lot like the kind of CE5 stuff that's going on now. You know, the close encounters of the fifth kind where these people go out in the desert and meditate and can supposedly like summon these crafts and communicate with them and do this exact thing. They can beam flashlights at them and these things, you know, communicate with them and react to their flashlights. So I thought that was kind of wild. Again, are they communicating to them and getting them to come here or are they meditating to a point where they start blurring the lines of reality and those things were just there and then they're like, oh shit, what's that on the ground when they were just existing within their own reality and you're kind of starting to blend between two. Well, that kind of gets back to stuff we talked about in the DMT episode. Like, what are you actually doing and what are you accessing at that point? And we talked about this kind of stuff in the Integratron episode too, where these people were doing the same thing. They were like meditating under this rock and then supposedly crafts and UFOs and whatnot showed up for them. So it's kind of a chicken or the egg situation, in my opinion. Kind of makes you wonder that if people weren't so fast paced all the time and they kind of just slowed things down, like what things in your reality might you actually realize that have been there the whole time, but your perspective blocked it out because you were too busy focusing on go, 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 go. But these things are here all the time. You're just not paying attention to them unless you're actually taking the time to slow down and pay attention to them. You know what I mean? Well, and I think that's kind of one of the main tenets of the ultra terrestrial theory is these things are here. They've always been here. They're here all the time. We can only see them under certain circumstances. Speaking of shirts, I need to make a shirt that says, know what I'm saying? Because I say that all the time and I don't realize it until I realize it. I'm like, damn, I've said that like 10 times this episode. Man, I said that way too much. (laughs) I'm going to make a montage one day of all my, know what I'm saying? (laughs) 
know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so anyway, uh, jumping back in, people in this community, apart from like all the orbs and UFOs, they also commonly reported more telephone interference and malfunctions. Uh, a lot of people reported poltergeist activity. And this one's interesting. Uh, the sounds of babies crying or women screaming, even when there are like no babies around. So remember that one. That's going to come up again, too. Let's list where this goes. Faye, Sasquatch. <laughs> like mm -hmm. the, the list is endless as far as those calls go. <laughs> yeah. So shortly after this, Keel had what he considered to be his quote unquote best sighting. And one night he was sitting in his car, you know, just looking up at the sky for UFOs. And he saw a brightly colored circular object and it descended from the sky and kind of like flew parallel past his car. And he said that the object had several portholes or circular lights and it emitted a sizzling or hissing sound. And this is something that's popped up time and time again in our episodes of uh, Flatwoods and I think Pascagoula as well talked about this you know, buzzing or hissing sound associated with these UFOs. Wasn't that associated with Hopskinville too? Wasn't there some reference to like when the when the guy first saw the ship that he heard like a like a low hum or something? I think maybe so. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. I know it was in Flatwoods, and I know it was in Pascagoula though. And there there's some other episode that we've done that has a reference to that, but it, yeah. it's a common motif across it a lot of this stuff up, though, or pops up time and time again. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Keel said that this object disappeared behind a nearby patch of trees. And he said that upon seeing this object, it, it here it is again, produced this like strange sense of fear in him. And he said the next morning his eyes were red and swollen shut, which is you know typical eye burn type stuff that everybody reports in UFO encounters, especially people who have actually been on board too. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, yep. this, he could he could have been abducted without even realizing it at this point. <laughs> and if we remember back to part one, Connie Carpenter had eye burn symptoms, but she didn't let she remember to see a UFO, but she did see Mothman and Keel speculated that the red eyes of Mothman could cause this eye burn phenomenon as well. Like it gives off some type of ray that we're unaware of possibly like some type of like, I don't want to say infrared, but you know, something that's like a non-visible, yeah. but still dangerous, like light spectrum or like, yeah, it's like when you look at, somebody welding or something. You yeah, know? exactly. That's a good example. A good one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that same night, Mary later recalled that she had seen a large orb of light herself, but kind of interesting. She said that she had trouble remembering the details of the event. And Keel later states that amnesia or the loss of memory of specific incidents or moments in time is a common part of the phenomenon. And perhaps related to this, Connie Carpenter claimed that on the night that Jack Brown visited her home, and again, this is like the kind of men in black type entity that visited her after her Mothman sighting. Uh, we discussed that in part one. But Carpenter claimed that on that night, her mother, Faye, interesting name, <laughs> uh, answered the door. But her mother later claimed that she had like no memory of this happening. She had no memory of this guy showing up at their house. Um, and after that, the Carpenter home began experiencing poltergeist activity. And 
I'm not going to try to go off the rails too far because we're over an hour deep, but this really hit home to me because, you know, I've told my kind of men in black story on the show before. Um, I think what I saw encountered, what have you were human government agents, but my mother, you know, she said she had no recollection of what happened between her sending me and my sister into the bedroom closet and her coming and getting us. And I don't think you even know this, Shane. My mother's middle name was Faye. That is ultra weird. Again, going mm-hmm. into the whole power names concept. Yeah. Just yeah. an idea so. to throw out there. You talk about your thing being normal government agents, but think about this. What if something showed up and that's when your mom had that issue or she didn't remember anything and that was when the actual agent showed up and the two experiences blended together that there was originally an agent that was a non-human and then the actual human agents came to ask questions about the non-human part, but it all blended together and seemed like it was the same thing and they just kind of screen memorated over each other, you know? Just, or just maybe it think was about. just something weirder than I'm recalling. I just didn't get close enough to them to realize who knows but mm-hmm. no I, I thought that this was wild this really like it was kind of an aha moment when i came across this story did your mom invite him in that's <laughs> did they ask to come in did she invite them i i don't think so well but, thank god <laughs> again, we, we don't really know what happened so um kind of rounding out uh some of the encounters in this chapter keel talks about a family uh they're the lily family and they live near the tnt area and they witnessed UFOs of all shapes and colors, and you know their car engines would stall out whenever they got close to the property. And they had a wide range of poltergeist-type activity. You know, uh, kitchen cabinets would slam open and shut, and there were strange metallic sounds. And again, this baby crying motif, even when there wasn't a baby around, they experienced that too. And the Lily's daughter also reported waking up one night to see, quote, a large figure towering over her bed. And she said, quote, it was a man, a big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very, very well, excuse me, but I could see that he was grinning at me. So there's that again. Indrid Cold, known as the grinning man. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is wild, too. She later told Keel that the figure was wearing a checkered shirt. And Keel states that, quote, bedroom phantoms in checkered shirts are an old hat to investigators of psychic phenomena. And what does that sound like? Uh, I'm assuming that you're going to go with Flannel Man. But I was also going to mention the fact that in the occult, the whole idea of black and white is supposed to represent like duality when it comes to like the checkerboard floors, when it comes to, you know, all the Freemason stuff. So, I mean, still a subconscious Freemason esque occult type of, uh, archetype. I didn't even think about that, but I just went straight to flannel man, but no, that's good too. Because I mean, there's definitely a cult tie-ins to all this. You kind of have to look at it from both angles. It's all, you know, different angles of the same thing. So, like we talk about connections. So, uh, all right. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. We're going to uh, jump into chapter 11. And this is another good one. It's called, if this is Wednesday, it must be a Venusian. Told you they're just getting wilder as we go along. <laughs> so in this chapter, Keel discusses what he refers to as the Wednesday phenomenon. And we're not talking about, you know, Wednesday Adams, the, the cute little goth girl. We're, we're talking about something different here. So, 
Keel states, quote, I had collected and analyzed some 700 UFO reports from 1966 and discovered that the greatest number of the sightings, 20%, took place on Wednesdays. I call this the Wednesday phenomenon. And he goes on to say that, quote, the Wednesday phenomenon works. I've been studying it for years, and I still can't say why it works. Researchers in other parts of the world have now followed my example and found similar time patterns in the sightings in their own countries. And Keel specifically says that 10 p.m. on a Wednesday is the best time to see a UFO. And this is interesting to me because I don't know how far down the like Bob Lazar rabbit hole you've fallen. Oh, I've been down that, that one a few times. <laughs> okay, then, then you're going to know what I'm getting ready to say. But, you know, like when he took his buddies out to watch the testing and whatnot, it was always on Wednesdays. And I believe that he mentioned that it was at 8 p.m. And the funny thing about that is this was in whatever Nevada out there in the desert. That would be roughly uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time where Keel was. I feel like everybody needs to start marking their watches, marking their calendars. And uh, at this specific time, every Wednesday, everybody needs to take some binoculars out and watch to the skies and see what they might find. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so 10 p.m. Eastern time. It, it looks like these entities uh, understand time zones, which kind of leads into a quote that Kiel said, you know, the entities profess to be ignorant of our time frame. Yet objects manage to fly to a rigid schedule that could be measured by our clocks and calendars, which we could also kind of speculate, again, piggybacking off Bob Lazar type stuff, was this some sort of government testing or activity that was going on? Or on the other side of it, when you talk about like a, just like any generic movie where they're trying to, there's like a certain doorway that something needs to be done in. When it comes to like the cold, it has to be exactly when the moon's at this point in the sky, blah, 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 blah. So it makes you wonder if, if these things aren't necessarily, I mean, even if they are extraterrestrial and they're using some type of like wormhole portal to get here, it makes you wonder if openings are only open at exact moments. And then that's when they take yeah. advantage of it. Well, and that's kind of what we've theorized before about like Bigfoot and whatnot is these things slip in and out for brief moments and you know well, why hasn't there been a body foul like, what do they eat well if they're only here for brief moments when the conditions are right that makes sense so like i i've said time and time again if you open up your mind and are willing to accept that there could be legitimately stranger things going on in my mind it becomes easier to rationalize and accept a lot of this stuff oh yeah for sure so uh, kind of closing out chapter 11, um, Keel has an observation that it doesn't really fit in with the Wednesday phenomenon, but I thought it merited inclusion. So he says, an unusual number of sightings and 40 in events seem to be concentrated around schools, and the largest percentage of witnesses consist of children between the ages of 7 and 18. And I'm going to pause right there. So we talk about Flatwoods that happened to kids. They were playing football out of school. You know, there's all these um, UFO stories. Uh, I think there's like a big one in like South Africa of the UFO landing in a schoolyard and all these kids drew pictures of the exact same like gray alien type thing. So this motif does pop up time and time again, even after Keel's time. 
does this have something to do with the pineal gland and the whole idea of calcifying the pineal gland that kids pineal glands aren't as calcified as adults are. So maybe it has something to do with being able to interpret things coming from other realities. And maybe that's why there's the whole idea of like, you know, putting fluoride in the water, all the conspiracy type stuff that goes to making it so the pineal gland doesn't work properly is because they're trying to block us off from being able to perceive these types of things. And that could even get back to ideas like kids having imaginary friends and shit like that, you know? I'm pretty fucking convinced that, of course, there is still the possibility of, like, psychosis, but I've always kind of had this, like, weird feeling that imaginary friends aren't necessarily imaginary, but they might be something a little bit more on the... friends either. Yeah, more on the, like, ghostly spectrum. Because you hear about some of these people that have imaginary friends, and they're like, oh, yeah, the man with the uh, the knife in it, like, the knife in his back. They just, it kind of fits some of these motifs of more of, like, the paranormal side of things. Like, it might be Absolutely. just, like, something that's lingering around that's like, oh, you can see me interact. So then they're like, you know, you have this this thing that people would assume is, like, this dark, evil creature that, you know, throws stuff around. It's, it's a poltergeist. It's this. It's that. But maybe it's just a fact that it's irritated because people can't see and interact with it. So all of a sudden, the kind side of it comes out when somebody can see and interact with it because then it doesn't get frustrated because it can actually interact with something. And that's why you'll have, like, these, again poltergeist now i don't want to say poltergeist probably not the best word for it but like these figures that are described as something like paranormal or like scary from a kid's per, from like when the kids describe it but it's not scary to them because again they can interact with it and they can actually see it and understand it <laughs> yeah so long story short if your kid says he's seeing some weird shit he might be right yep <laughs> and it might just be a matter of you can't perceive it <laughs> So uh, one more Keel quote before we close out chapter 11. He says, another statistical oddity is that the majority of adults who claim their autos or pursued by UFOs or monsters are school teachers, especially teachers specializing in abnormal children, the very bright or the mentally deficient. So I don't know where that ties into anything, but you know, all of this with the school children and teachers and whatnot, kind of gets back to the idea that we talked about earlier with the census takers wondering about how many kids were in the house. I don't know. It's still giving me weird vibes. I don't know what the answer to all of it is, but just the, the fascination it's with kids is kind of whatever it is. Yeah. It's kind of giving me some, <laughs> some weird feelings. <laughs> all right. So chapter 12, this is going to be the last one we tackle tonight. This chapter is called games. Non people play. And in this chapter, Keel kind of talks more about the strange activity around Point Pleasant. And he tells this story about a local farmer who claimed that one night his cows, quote, really acted up. And this farmer went outside to investigate and he saw, quote, a big red and white glowing thing sitting right in the field. And so the farmer ran back into his house to retrieve his gun. Because what else are you going to do? If you're a farmer, I mean, yeah, that's just what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when he made it back outside, the object was gone. But he claimed that there was, quote, a 30-foot circle of scorched earth on the hillside where the object had been. And Keel says that he had seen these types of fairy circles many times before. And this sounds the like Devil's Tramping Ground, right? On the show. Yep. <laughs> as soon yeah, as you buddy. said the ring, I was like, Devil's Tramping Ground. <laughs> and that's specifically why I included this in the notes, because it circles back around to something we've talked about on the show. And also what I was saying earlier with the dog, at the fact that these things are known to vibrate, they give off that humming thing, and it seems to be at a frequency that they vibrate that causes burning. 
So, I mean, yeah, yeah it's still, well, still hey, all kind of around the same motif, man. <laughs> got something else for you there. So that same night, this farmer said that the circuit box in his barn was like mysteriously melted. And the following day, men who claimed to be from the electric company showed up at his farm and they, quote, fussed around with the transformer on the pole by the road. And here's where it gets wild. He said the men appeared to be of Asian descent and wore coveralls and shoes with thick rubber soles. The thick rubber soles, especially with that, like, I wonder if it's supposed to be a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, in, like some type of like insulator, considering a lot of these things seem to be some type of like electronic charge, like mm -hmm. just like a weird concept to, to kind of throw around in the old noggin here. <clears throat> so maybe they wear these thick rubber soles because there's this whole thing about them not making physical contact with our earthly plane because maybe that is what gets them stuck here because you hear about the whole concept that you connect with the earth when you walk around barefoot you get into a lot of like the spiritual concepts it like links you cut you off right there let me get through this next section and we're going to circle back around to this because just just bear with me for a minute all right i'll keep i'll keep it i'll keep it in the front of my head i'll make sure i won't lose it i got right. you so keel says quote in earlier times Fairies, demons, and even human witches practicing their black Sabbath rites chose gravel pits, garbage dumps, cemeteries, and crossroads for their appearances. Modern hairy monsters and UFOs select the same sites, and quite a few UFO contacts have occurred near crossroads or on highways still under construction or at points where old highways once intersected. Darren Berger's first contact with cold was on a newly completed highway, yards from an old intersection. Across the river, the vast Indian mounds of Ohio stand as mute testimony of some earlier culture almost identical to the culture which constructed the great mounds of Great Britain. The latter were joined by straight tracks or lays which formed a complicated grid system. So you're talking about energies and do they wear these insulated shoes because of energies? And he said like these things appear on ley lines and also liminal spaces is basically what he was mentioning, which we all know about the connections between paranormal activity happening with these liminal spaces. Again, going into liminal spaces, it makes you wonder if again, that insulator has, if that, that thick rubber shoe has to be an insulator so that they don't, become connected with earth or our reality. It's almost like they're staying like above it and not physically touching it. Cause maybe if they actually physically touch this reality, then they become one with this reality and can't return to their previous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as we get deeper and deeper into this and we're kind of exchanging ideas back and forth, I, I think we might be onto something like we talk all the time about, how a lot of this boils down to energies and vibration and things like that. And maybe that's what it is, man. You know, maybe it's some type of technology where it makes it so that, okay. So just imagine this, you get, you got the whole ghost concept, right? Where they can like walk through walls, like they can do all of this type of stuff. And I've thrown this idea multiple times that things from other realities could be vibrating at a different frequency. And that's why they can pass through things. So what if these shoes are actually a device 
that makes it so that it vibrates at the same as our reality so that they can walk on our reality. And if they don't have this, then their particles are vibrating separately and they'll basically like blend in and like mesh into our reality, which could cause them to, you know, you know, just that whole concept where if like you push two objects into each other, eventually they will get to a point where like the, the, the molecules will start to like blend through each other. It makes you wonder if that might be like the same thing that the shoes are a technology so that they don't vibrate at a different frequency than our reality. And they don't end up basically like becoming in like morphing into our reality. You know what I'm saying? Well, and he even talks about how like the sing song manner in which they spoke could be because they operate on like a different time signature than we do. And so they have to like slow themselves down and their speech ends up sounding weird because of it. Maybe that kind of piggybacks off of what you were just saying. Because they, they almost have to like lower their vibrational frequency mm -hmm. in order to interact with this reality. Exactly. So, I mean, we're at almost an hour and a half. I've got a couple more quotes. I'm going to skip past to the last thing I've got here just so we aren't here for another 30 minutes. But uh, you got to give me all them good details, man. If you got some, if you got some of that good stuff, you got, you got to throw it. Like, we might circle back around to it. But uh, one last point I want to hit before we leave. Keel says that the phenomenon is heavily dependent upon belief. And he says that as more and more people believe in the UFO hypothesis, the quote, lower force is able to manipulate more people. And in regards to this UFO hypothesis, Keel states, quote, we may face a time when universal acceptance of the fictitious space people will lead us to a modern faith in extraterrestrials that will enable them to interfere overtly in our affairs. And, you know, that kind of is a nice bow to wrap up this episode. I think it talks about, you know, lower forces, a lot of these vibrations and whatnot, and it also kind of hits on these Collins Elite ideas. So I thought that was a good place to end part two of this series and if you've got anything to throw in i'd love to hear it i guess i'll hold a lot of what i'm going to say for the next one because i feel like there's still a continuation from the end of this but i want to leave the listeners just with the whole concept of vibrations being the key factor to a lot of this phenomenon vibrations frequencies and energies yep we keep coming back to it repeatedly at this point i mean doesn't matter what we talk about Nowadays, it seems like we keep coming back to energies and vibrations. I think it's really funny how our episodes keep falling where they play off of the last one. Like the DMT one was just out of left field, but it connects with everything that we've been talking about lately. Yeah, absolutely. So I've rambled on long enough. I'm going to leave you uh, with that for part two. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to uh, leave a review or rating for us on iTunes or Spotify. Greatly appreciate it. Share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it, even an enemy. It don't matter. Just share the show if you think anybody will enjoy it. And uh, if you guys leave us a five-star review, of course, we'll read on the show and give you guys a big shout out. But any of your guys' love and support directed towards us is more than appreciated. And we definitely love and appreciate all you guys out there. And get up with us, do the internet things. Y'all know how the internet works and submit questions for bizarre inquiries. And every single thing that we have mentioned is all available in the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And for now, I have been the one, the only Shane Squatch. And I've been Orin. And guys, again, I tell you every episode because this one is getting real out there. So don't be afraid to always stay bizarre. Bizarre. Bizarre.
thick sole rubber shoes 